This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. There it is. So it looks like a pretty, you know, typical wooden box. I like how there's a lock on it. Pretty apt and responsible. You want to see her? <laughs> Seemingly. I don't know. Do I? It's up to you. I wouldn't open it, honestly. I wouldn't open it. You sure? I mean, you can open it, just don't physically take her out of that box. Uh. Okay. Good? Yep, good. Doesn't really give you the sense that somebody was trying to do something nice, does it? It's a small, maybe a foot-long wooden figure, um, we believe of a woman. It looks like a woman. Um, there's a bunch of rusty nails driven in the eyes, and there's a noose made out of some kind of a round cord hanging around the neck. They were trying to blind somebody to something, and obviously cause somebody what looks like fatal harm. Um, whether that person is still around or this is pretty old, I don't know. I don't know. All I know is that whatever is attached to it isn't very happy. Uh, just, I think, I get the overwhelming sense she just wants to go home. We stopped traveling with her a year ago. We were doing an event and we usually will keep the box closed. And if we do open it, it's gonna be for like 30 seconds to a minute. And it's usually, you know, one-on-one with someone. This guy begged. Yeah. Cause I didn't feel right about it, but he begged, he begged, he begged. He's like, I've heard so much about it. I just want to see it. And I was like, man, I don't know if the, I don't know if the vibe is right here right now, but he begged and begged. And Greg opened the box. And so this happened within the course of like 30 seconds. Directly behind us, a huge thing of soda dumped over on a table on its own and wrecked like $500 worth of books. It ricocheted down the aisle and the lights started to swing. And then at the very end of the aisle, a guy turned towards us and uh, had a seizure. 
and he bit his tongue and there was blood everywhere and it was like all over table. The guy who asked Greg to open the box like instantly started crying and like it was just literally like- I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I didn't know it was, I didn't believe it. I didn't believe it was gonna happen. 30 seconds this box was open for and that's what happened. At that point, we both were like, we can't ever travel with her ever again. We just can't because that was way, way too much to have happened in such a short kind of time span. I'm Greg Newkirk, and with my wife, Dana, uh, I started the Traveling Museum of the Paranormal and the Occult about four years ago, and now we travel the country collecting haunted, cursed, and paranormally significant artifacts from people, teaching people to be nicer to ghosts. <laughs> that's pretty much, the, that's pretty much the, the whole gig. I think I like to think of it in terms of sort of uh, being caretakers for these objects and for the stories around them. And I think that what we're really trying to do is preserve the stories to preserve the objects and to preserve curiosity and to keep people curious and to, to kind of give them the ability to, to kind of delve into some of these things by preserving their stories. You know, we were able to share them with people that maybe would never get the chance to actually hear about them. So uh, for me, that's really one of the most important things that we do. I always think it's funny that I'm an ordained minister and Dana is a witch. And it's the kind of thing people don't expect. But it's funny, too, because, like, you know, there's a lot of parallel there, too. We, we're both spiritual, just from two different perspectives. But that's good because you need that. You need to have that as to make a whole, that duality. I'm Jim Perry, and you are listening to Euphemet, a show about the unknown and our relationship to it. On this edition, haunted, cursed, possessed artifacts and the people who own them, their mission to present a deeper understanding of these most feared objects, tonight on Euphemet. Where do you guys store all of these artifacts? Man, um, well, most of the artifacts are actually in our house. Uh, most of them are usually not out on display. Like there's a couple objects that are in here right now that normally aren't uh, out on display. They kind of are put in boxes and, and kept in the office, which is where most of the objects are. Um, some of them aren't in the house. There's one specifically that's not allowed in the house. And that's one of the worst objects that we have. And I don't think I'll ever allow it in the house. It's just literally one of the absolute worst objects. Um, but yeah, they, they live with us. They live in our house with us. They're like, they're haunted roommates, I guess they, we take care of. So they're kind of in every room and scattered around all over the place. Living with these items has been a learning experience. It still is a learning experience. I mean, it's always touch and go, especially when something new shows up. You don't really know how to respond to it or what it needs. Does it need privacy? Does it want to be around? Does it want to be acknowledged? Um, it's always a learning experience, and it's taken us a while to get to this point. I mean, we, we've been investigating weird stuff for almost 20 years now, so we're used to things coming home with us once in a while. Um, we've had items that have acted strangely, but it's really exploded in the last four years. 
and we're roommates with people and things that we never could have planned for. And, uh, it's always, a, it's always touch and go always. It, it is really interesting how much people want to share with you guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think, I think it's also innately, it's not the type of stuff that, you know, you can't take like a clown doll that you think is haunted up to any regular person and be like, Hey, check this out. What do you think about this? This thing creeps me out. Will you take it? Because I think they get two things out of it. They get one, you know, someone's actually listening to their story and will continue to share their story. So they'll get something, you know, in the museum. We always put the person's name, whoever donates it or, or the team that donates it, whatever. So they're getting that. They're getting some validation. And, you know, their story, they know it's going to get told. And most people's stories, they don't keep getting told. Yeah, I think I think the thing, too, is, like, most of them, like you said, they're so used to people thinking they're nuts. That, like, when you're totally open and willing to, like, listen to what it is, like, whatever they have to say, they're instantly, there's relief there because you're validating them and justifying them. So uh, we do get to hear parts of people's lives that they don't share with most people. I mean, some of the objects that we have are, they have a lot of trauma attached to them. And they're parts of people's lives that they probably wouldn't share with even some of their closest friends. Some these dolls, for instance, are some of the most awful things that we have in the museum. We keep these locked up, as you can see normally. Um, there's like half a dozen of them. You notice those dolls are a little strange. They're from the 50s. Those are old show me where they touch you dolls and they're anatomically correct. They came from a case uh, not too far from here, downstate Kentucky. Um, they were dealing with a crazy poltergeist haunting uh, in one of the youth children's services place. And they haven't used these dolls. They haven't used them in forever. They have better ways of doing it now. Um, but they had this stack of forensic dolls and the investigators that were working on the case tracked it down to them. And the minute that they moved them, all hell broke loose in the place. And they wouldn't take them in their homes for obvious reasons. Uh, They just had them in a garbage bag, like in the back of this one investigator's truck. And they didn't know what to do with them. They didn't want to destroy them because they kind of felt bad, you know? 50, 60 years of trauma in these dolls. You can imagine all the stuff that they've seen. Um, And so they gave them to us and we normally just leave them alone, keep them locked up. I mean, that's half of the job is taking stuff that other people don't want and they don't know what to do with. Um, you know, we have a doll that uh, family members think one of their old family members is still attached to. What do you do with it? You don't throw it out. You don't want to sell it, but it creeps you out and you don't want anything to do with it. So we'll take them, I guess, you know, kind of a halfway house. I'm in Cincinnati, near the Ohio River, in a second-floor walk-up. I'm in the home of the Newkirks, founders of the Traveling Museum of the Paranormal and the Occult. They're longtime investigators of all things strange, and some refer to them as the real-life Mulder and Scully. I'm just lucky to call them friends. I'm getting the grand tour today, a peek behind the curtain of one of the most comprehensive occult collections in the States. Here in their home, live some of the most fascinating and startling objects I've ever witnessed. Artifacts like the crone, Billy the idol of nightmares, a cursed voodoo nail, haunted dolls, and a lot more. Stories of nightmares and phantoms and lingering spirits, this all has me a little on edge. 
and I realize I'm clenching my jaw. How can Dana and Greg live in peace with these items? What am I missing here? Next on Euphemet, we get to know what it's like living with the haunted and growing to love it. Right after this. The thunderstorms haven't stopped since I arrived in Ohio late last night. Violent lightning strikes fill the room with strobing light, reflecting off antique porcelain doll eyes. It's cinematic. It certainly enhances the mood. And it's the perfect setting to ask about the idol of nightmares, also known as Billy, because he's an idol. He's also two and a half feet tall, and a wooden statue. He appears to be an African warrior and is decorated with ornate inlays and piercing white eyes. He's beautiful, he's regal, and he sits in the corner of the New Kirk's living room on a bed of gifts. An altar that denotes much more than a celebrated curation. Billy has to be something special. Tell me everything about your friend Billy. <laughs> wow. Lord. That's a... Yeah. So we were on a late night radio show talking about the work that we do with the museum. And the following day, we got an email from this guy who said, I listened to you on the show. Uh, I have something I want to give you guys. Dana said, there's no way in hell we're going to go meet some weirdo who heard us on late night radio. Um, and I didn't listen. So we met in a Walmart parking lot. And this guy comes walking towards the car. He has this burlap sack held away from his body. And the guy looked totally normal. He didn't look like a weirdo at all. Baseball cap pulled down real low, like he didn't want anybody to know who he was. He walks up and he says, is your name Greg? And I said, yeah. And he puts the burlap sack in my hands and says, it's your problem now. And then he starts walking away. And I'm like, whoa, wait, wait up, wait, come back. Please, you have to give me more than that. The more information we have, the more likely we're going to be able to figure out why this thing is bothering you. Like, just because you give this to us doesn't mean it's going to stop. It might be something else. Sometimes these things need to be appeased in some way. And he's like, well, I, I found this thing under my house. He'd only lived in the house for about six months. He's running new cable, and he finds this big lump of dirt. And underneath of it is this burlap bag bound in twine. And he takes it upstairs and he cuts it open and there's an African statue inside. And he thought, well, that's really strange. Why would that have been down there? And he just kind of leaves it in his office. And that night, their son runs into the room and says, the little man is coming in my room at night. He's pulling the covers off of me while I sleep. And they're like, well, kind of a scary statue. This kid's just being a kid. Until they started having weird stuff happen. They would hear people rummaging through their kitchen at night faucets turn on and off, lights flicker, and then eventually they started having terrible nightmares. He would not tell me, no matter how much I begged, what his wife would dream about, but he did share with me uh, the dream that was the last straw for him. He had a dream that he was in bed with his wife, and it didn't feel like a dream. He didn't know he was dreaming at the time. And he's in bed with his wife, 
And he just kind of calmly leans over on the nightstand and grabs this big knife and stabs his wife in the chest, cuts her all the way down to her stomach, pulls her heart out, and starts to eat it. And he said, I could taste the blood, I could smell it, I could feel the warmth of it, and then I just, out of a dead sleep, jumped up, dripping sweat, freaked out of my mind. And he was like, that's when I knew this statue has something to do with it, and I can't have it anymore. The following day, I think it was the next day, we were off to Mackinac Island in uh, Upper Michigan. We got, what, half an hour away, and the car breaks down. And I thought, well, it's about time. You know, the car's old. It was used like a 2007 at the time. And so I was like, okay, I'll just call AAA. And we got towed, and the guys at the body shop were like, there's nothing wrong with your car. And they start it right up. Okay, maybe it was a fluke. That's fine. So we go. We, we go to Mackinac Island. We have an event. It's great. Two weeks later, we have another event. This one's a little closer to home. Same thing. Half an hour, 45 minutes down the road. Car breaks down. Same deal. Just won't start. Call AAA. Get it towed. Nothing wrong with your car, buddy. Starts right up. And we both look at each other and go, okay, there's only one new thing that's been added since then. It's the statue. I I think that at that point I was starting to realize that like something was legitimately going on. Like the first time we, you know, it's easy to kind of go, yeah, okay, this is it's a coincidence. Like you said, it's an old car. But the second time it happened, I started to like legitimately be concerned that like there was something happening. And so the first thing that we did was let's talk to a voodoo practitioner, someone who can maybe guide us a little bit, give us some information. And um, the suggestion was given uh, to us to give him rum and tobacco uh, as a way to kind of appease him, but also just as a a sense of uh, respect. And that's what we started doing right away. We started to give him rum and tobacco. And that was the first um, offerings that we ever really gave to Billy. Never had a car problem again after that. But a very strange thing started to happen. I started to have nightmares. They were always the same. It was always in a place that had to do with travel. So it was either like a bus depot or an airport. And I would be in this busy terminal and I would get the feeling that somebody was staring at me. And I'd look around and eventually I would see this little man, three, four feet tall, jet black skin, like oil, bright blue eyes. And I knew who it was because he was wearing a burlap shawl. And he never said anything. He just stared at me. And I always got this sense, okay, we can see each other now. That was the vibe. We can see each other. I see you, you see me. And I'd wake up, cold sweat. Then we started doing EVP sessions with him. And that's when things went really off the rails. I think it was one of the one of the very first events that we did. We brought Billy with us and we did an EVP session with him. And the response was just guttural screaming. He was literally just screaming as if he was screaming at the top of his lungs, like an animal, like a wild animal. And that was consistent for, I don't know, a couple months at, at the very least. And then what started happening is he went from this guttural screaming into actual vocal tone and words and as if he was communicating with us. He was sort of like learning how to communicate with us.
little spooky, that one. That's one of the earlier ones. <laughs> I want to come out. As we continued to work with Billy, people, we noticed people started to do some strange things. People would start bringing him gifts. Don't know what initiated it. Don't know how it started. But people started bringing him really personal gifts. Um, sometimes it was herbs. Sometimes it was things like toy boats. People have bought him like little tykes cars, like all kinds of stuff. Like if you could turn around and see the amount of stuff on his altar back there. It's just tons of stuff. And there's even stuff underneath. Sometimes it's just personal between them. Some people started whispering things into Billy's ear. Don't know where it came from. And then people started having really profound experiences with him where I mean, there are people, I can point to two or three people already who say they were in a car accident and they're sure that it was Billy that stopped it from happening. Um, that Billy flashed before their eyes, before they were in this horrible accident, uh, and they know that it was because they gave Billy a gift, that they ended up living through it. They were that bad. There was a woman, um, we were doing an event in Mackinac Island, uh, almost a year after... Uh, the first one and there was a woman who was a tattoo artist and she sat kind of with Billy she asked us if she could draw his portrait and she had brought him some coffee because the night before during an EVP session he had asked for coffee so she brought him some fresh coffee and she asked can I take him in the other room for an hour and just draw his portrait and we were you know we said absolutely it wasn't busy and we were on the second floor of a building in the middle of fall on an island and she's sitting off for about an hour sketching his portrait and out of nowhere a snake slithers into the room and coils up underneath the chair that Billy is sitting in as she's sketching him and she instantly starts to cry and I kind of like run over and I pick up the snake with her and she we kind of take him outside and and she tells us that snakes are incredibly symbolic for her spiritually they're they're literally a a totem animal for her so she felt as if it was Billy's way of saying thank you and I mean everything around that is weird the fact that a snake made it up onto the second floor of a building in the middle of fall and just happened to curl up underneath the exact chair that Billy was sitting in even I was like oh crap like Billy just it was a gift basically it was his way of saying thank you and people started to have experiences like that with him that were amazing and deeply personal and and some of the you know the some of the connections he was making with people greg and i couldn't understand but it wasn't really our place to it was between the two of them so we just sort of fostered it and allowed them to have time with him and make those deep connections with him we had to go away for a week on a, a ghost-themed cruise. But we were afraid to take Billy because he has ivory inlays on him and it was going across international waters and we didn't know, you know, we figured it would be better if Billy stayed. And so we left him with some friends, some of the few people we trust. And we were gone for a week and we got back. Uh, so we picked Billy up and we just knew, like, he was happy to see us. It's, it's a really weird thing to say, I realize. But we could just tell. And on the way home, we actually sat Billy between the seat rests. We were driving all night long 
and I got tired. And you know how you sleep at a rest stop, a gas station, you know, just to kind of recharge your batteries real quick. So we stopped at a gas station and we slept for seven hours in that car. And I had a Billy dream and it was totally different than the last one. I knew it was him. He was no longer this little three foot guy. He was this like six foot tall guy in a a burlap um, like cape and he had a walking stick and he looked very regal. I was following him through this mountain pass and it felt very significant. And there was a weird weight to the dream. And he spoke to me for the first time. He turned before we went to this path through this dark forest. I could tell there was something wrong. And he said, do not speak. Those who speak too much are eaten by the wolves. And then he pointed and there were corpses on the ground and they were corpses of people that I knew. And I saw the wolves trailing us and I woke up immediately and it was a very bizarre thing for me because that type of thing just doesn't typically happen. You know, I've, n- I've never been sensitive or never had a spirit guide or anything like that. Like I can barely even meditate. And so when something like that happened, it really spoke to me. Up to this point, uh, it had we'd been obsessed with trying to figure out where Billy was from and like what he was made out of. And so it was this perfect moment where this guy walks up to the museum and he just happens to be an archaeologist and it just happens to be fascinated with Billy and, and the, the subject matter and everything. So he told us... Uh, what he could, you know, what he knew about Billy just by looking at him, but it wasn't his speciality. And luckily he had a colleague who was in the Congo and this specific person had way more knowledge um, and he reached out to him instantly. So the email exactly said, Billy is a small Bakongo from the Congo in Central Africa, a figure made in the style of a Kisi a divine figure often used in healing and conflict resolution rituals. It has no nails and was probably made for personal use as protection against the evil eye. The design and symbolism of the inlays relate to protection against the evil eye. The inlays are usually made of bone, ivory, and shell. On our phone call, he told me that this probably belonged to the healer for his personal use. We were always thrown off because Kisi figures always seem to have nails in them. We didn't realize there was a difference between like a personal healer or a shaman's personal Kisi figure. But that opened up the floodgates because immediately we we had a, a we had a path we could follow. And the more we read, the more we realized all of the stuff that was happening with Billy before then was stuff they would do for Kisis. People would give them gifts. They would give them medicine in order to activate them. People started activating Billy for specific purposes by bringing him things. And then the more we read about Billy, the more we were like, oh my God, this is terrible. This is sad. I can't believe anyone would think that this was evil. These figures were what these Congo people used to speak to their gods, to speak to their ancestors, to speak to the spirits of nature. And uh, when the missionaries came in, they decimated them. They, They destroyed 
most of them, and the ones they didn't destroy, they kept as art pieces, which is probably how Billy ended up in Dayton, Ohio. And then we found out the stories of how every Kesey, and this is, this is, a, it's very strange for me to say, every Kesey has to have a handler. And they find out that they're going to be a Kesey handler in their dreams. And you are taught things by the Kesey in your dreams for the benefit of the rest of the tribe. Billy has since given me dreams where he's told me to build things. And I've built them. And they work. Billy feels like a family member now. And nothing but positivity has come out of dealing with him. And had we been the type of collectors that are out there now, we would never have gotten to this point because the minute he screamed, he would be in a ring of salt under glass or doing parlor tricks for somebody. And uh, it's a really sad, frustrating thing to think that that could be the case. Um, and all we had to do was be nice and look past, look past that initial fear and approach him with curiosity. And now we're at this position where it's like, you know, people are literally having their lives changed by interacting with him. The beautiful thing about what's happened now too is Billy now is doing exactly what he was doing 200 years ago but just in a different capacity you know people are bringing him gifts there and he's healing them and he's teaching them and he's doing exactly what he was created to do just 200 years later on a completely different part of the planet in a totally different way but he's still doing exactly what he was meant to do I mean one of the things that Greg and I are constantly trying to talk about and and just sort of bring up because it doesn't feel as if it feels as if this is a conversation that we should be already having people that are interested in paranormal but we we really aren't for the most part and that's the ethics of what we're doing like when we really consider the idea that billy for instance who's an intelligence um there's an ethical responsibility then there's a, there's a part of this that is really very human and I think a lot of people forget that and Billy is this beautiful example in a way we're making people think differently about Billy but that's deeper that's a deeper thing because if you can think differently and think more curious about something you don't understand maybe that'll extend to someone you don't understand and will just generally make the world a, a nicer place to live in. I am captivated by the new Kirk's connection with Billy, and I get why it's easier for them to live and work with their collection. To them, they're not just objects. They're stories and spirits and friends they're not dealing with the ominous unknown. They're living with the devil they know. So sitting under the altar of Billy, I had to ask. Can I try to interview him? You can try. <laughs> Would that be appropriate? You can give it a shot. You want me to get the recorder? Yeah. Right, so I'll, I'll give him an offering. I just want to leave a... Good impression. You can put it in the bag. You can just put it on the altar. All right, I'll put it right here. It's Ireland, but 
Okay, Billy, this is going to be new. Uh, if you're around, it'd be great if you could answer some questions. We'll keep them light. This is Jim. He's a friend. We've not met him yet. He wants to ask you some questions. Yeah, if, if you've been around, you might have noticed I've been here for hours uh, in this space. I sense that uh, it's a space where you're very important and, and you're in a very important um, individual uh, for these two people. And so for how much they've talked about you, I just thought we should chat for a second. I think it would be rude for me not to bring you into this and ask you some questions. Okay, we got to step away. Hey, do you like Dana and Greg? Who is your favorite cat in this house? Where are you right now? Is there a place you want to go? How do you feel? seem to be maybe saying something with this recording. You're making me build up expectations where I don't want to. Really. But with all the wonderful stories I've heard about you, uh, it's hard not to. What do you think about this mirror behind you? Do you think it's a good thing or a bad thing? How old are you? What do you want us to learn? Thank you for your time. I appreciate meeting you. All right, we'll see. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna step away. Hey, do you like Dana and Greg? Who is your favorite cat in this house? Where are you right now? I think he said happy. You're making me build up expectations when I don't want to. Really. But with all the wonderful stories I've heard about you, uh, hard not to. What do you think about this mirror behind you? Do you think it's a good thing or a bad thing? <laughs> 
How old are you? What do you want us to learn? Alright, well thank you for your time. I appreciate meeting you. Like I said in the, in the beginning, most people don't really know what he's about and he looks a little intimidating and he, kind of scary. So their initial response to him is kind of, you know, they're a bit afraid of him. And then there's a journey that they go with him. And that journey goes from being a little frightened, all you know, to feeling like they are a part of his family and, and, and having that kind of healing that he does give to people. So it's, it's an understandable journey. I think it's an important journey. And that's why I think... We cry every single time we tell this story and we're a mess every single time we tell the story, but most of the time it's because we know that the process of people just going through going through the story and understanding it and having the the context for all of it, I think it is more important that way. It feels like that to me. As jarring as it is to seemingly have a conversation with a haunted statue. It feels safe in here. It feels like the Newkirks are not alone. That, that I'm not alone. And maybe if we could learn something from this, it's that not all things that are different need to be feared. But perhaps, there's an opportunity to open our hearts. Thank you for listening to this edition of Euphemet. To learn more about Greg and Dana's work, and to meet Billy yourself, visit paramuseum.com. Also, make sure to join the group, the Society of Euphemet on Facebook. We'll actually be breaking down the EVPs heard on this episode. Also, to support the show, please remember to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. You can follow us at Euphemet on social media and me at It's Jim Perry on Twitter. This has been Euphemet. I'm Jim Perry. And until next time, keep looking up. <laughs>